Today's reading is taken from Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21, and this can be found on page 1176 of the Church Bibles. That's Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 21. Submit to one another out of the reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Just before we make a proper start, I want to commend the Keswick Convention as well, and also to welcome you to St. John's this morning. Sarah and I went once, but accidentally. We were fairly newly married, and having not grown up in Christian homes, we'd never heard of the Keswick Convention, we just thought we'd go camping in Keswick. And so we took our tent, and it so happened that as we were going up on the train, Uh, I recognized uh, down the carriage was uh, someone I'd seen uh, before on a a big stage, um, but at that point hadn't met personally. It was John Stott, uh, who, again, if you've been a a Christian for any length of time, uh, you may know as one of the the greatest, really, of the 20th century Christian leaders, uh, many years rector of a central London church, but with a worldwide ministry. But what struck me then... Uh, and as a young minister, it was particularly uh, uh, good for me to see this, was here was uh, what turned out to be the main speaker at Keswick that year, uh, but he wasn't travelling in first class, he was travelling in standard class with the rest of us, uh, and he wasn't sitting poring over his notes, uh, making his last-minute alterations, as I certainly would have been doing. <laughs> he was engaged in evangelistic conversation uh, with a group of three uh, non-Christian young men, Uh, We could overhear the conversation because he was just a little way uh, up the carriage. And I was so struck by the genuineness uh, of that great man who really I'd only known through his books uh, and uh, spoken ministry. Uh, And coming to this subject today, uh, there will be a link, dear brother, Uh, in coming to this uh, subject again today, uh, I was happy to have that memory because there uh, was someone who not only taught the word of God faithfully but lived it uh, as uh, a celibate uh, man himself. He never married uh, and was uh, concerned above all uh, that he might share the good news of God's grace and truth in Jesus with whoever he met, confident that God's word was sufficient. 
not only to bring us to know God, but to equip us to live a life in this fallen world with all its temptations, with all our failures and disappointments, to live that life to the glory of God. So that's my hope and desire as we continue in our series, uh, Jesus, Gender and Sexuality, that we will come to God's word uh, humbly sitting under its authority, confident of its life-giving message Uh, ready to go and live it and to share it uh, with our neighbours, convinced that in the gospel alone and all its entailments is the power of God for salvation and for godly living. So let's pray that we would do that this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, we do indeed pray that you would humble us as we come to your word and thrill us as well. Uh, We know, as we've just sung, your word is a hammer and a fire. Sometimes its ministry in our hearts uh, breaks away uh, sin and pride. We know also, uh, Lord Jesus, that we may meet you here in your word. And just as you call us to repentance, so you also call us to faith, to discover your amazing grace that extends to us where we are today, not where we should have been or where we might have been, but in our lives as they are this day. We pray that that uh, may be so as we sit under your word this morning, for we ask it to your Father's glory. Amen. Well, we are continuing uh, in uh, our series, Jesus, Gender and Sexuality. Uh, If you've not been with us over recent weeks, uh, this is week five of a six-part series. The other uh, earlier parts are available on our YouTube uh, channel if you wish to uh, have a listen to those. Each one, though, is designed uh, to be heard on its own, so don't despair uh, if you've not been with us. There will be a question time uh, after the service, and uh, we've uh, taken it as our custom now to come and sit up here in the side chapel. And uh, I've been so encouraged that we've had a a little group every week uh, and a really good conversation. Uh, Last week, uh, I think we went on for quite a long time, but you can come and go as you wish. Uh, To that, you're not obliged to stay until the bitter end. Uh, If you want to ask questions but don't want to ask them out loud, uh, then do make use of the Slido uh, facility. Just go to that website, uh, put in the church office, phone number is the code, uh, and you can ask a question either anonymously or with your name. Uh, and uh, we've uh, begun to see some traction with that. I was really encouraged by that. We had a number of questions on there uh, last week, uh, and uh, we will try to answer those in the group. Uh, But for those who put on a question anonymously, and where I don't know, therefore, if you're in the group that's asked them, I will also try and put on uh, a brief answer uh, on the Slido page. So uh, questions are welcome. Uh, Where are we? How did we get here? Uh, Well, week one, we uh, were uh, looking at the whole um, concept of questions. Essentially, uh, anything may be asked, but if we want a satisfying answer, then we need to come humbly and ready to be taught and ready to know that Jesus will ask us some searching questions as well. Then in our second week, uh, we uh, were reminded that there is no them, as in us and them. Uh, There is only the us. There is only the us who have the baggage of sin in our lives, including uh, in how we consider ourselves as men and women uh, and in the ways in which, as sexual beings, we have fallen short of the glory of God. But there is grace sufficient, grace for me. Jesus says to us as we come in repentance, as we come seeking his mercy, as we have done already this morning, he says, go, your faith has saved you, go in peace. This is why he came. 
Uh, then uh, two weeks ago, uh, we considered the subject of gender, not uncontroversial uh, in the uh, society in which we lived, uh, but we saw God's grace uh, to someone who our culture would describe as gender non-conforming, uh, the eunuch who was the official uh, in the Ethiopian government. We also uh, saw the creator's abiding purpose uh, is uh, once we have come into Christ uh, to, with his strength, live as the men or women that God has created and called us to be in him. And then last week, uh, as we considered sexuality, uh, we saw that in our own hearts and certainly in the culture in which we live, uh, just as in every human culture, we have turned away from the creator and worshipped instead the gifts that he has made. Seeking our liberty in that, we find ourselves only enslaved and unsatisfied and under judgment. But again, grace meets us right there, uh, and we are called uh, in Christ to know his forgiveness, but also then with his strength and enabling in the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to live a life according to God's will, that is, of abstinence for those who are not married uh, and faithfulness for those who are And so today, as we come uh, to week five, we're turning our focus from sex, uh, which we were uh, considering last week, uh, or rather its only proper place in marriage, to marriage itself. What is God's purpose in marriage? That's our big question for today. And then next week, uh, in the final week, uh, we shall uh, tackle Jesus' uh, teaching in a key passage, Matthew 19. We, uh, if you'd looked at the program, you'd know we were going to look at that today. Uh, it just made more sense as I was working it through that actually we look at that passage next week. So Jesus' teaching on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness, uh, all in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12, will be our subject next Sunday. So today, what is God's purpose in marriage. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? That's what we looked at last week. The creator's intention is plain. And uh, you may have heard uh, that verse uh, that was the center uh, piece of uh, the exposition last week because it is uh, the Bible's North Star uh, when it comes to understanding marriage and of God's purposes for sexual uh, intimacy within marriage. Uh, the, the North Star, the old um, uh, travelers would uh, chart their paths across the northern hemisphere because that was the brightest star. Well, Genesis 2.24 is that bright star. This is God's definition of marriage and purpose in it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Well, so far, nothing new. But then Paul says something quite remarkable, at least remarkable, uh, if actually you haven't read the whole Bible and seen just how common the imagery that he uses then is. Because he says, uh, having gone back to the Bible's definition of marriage, Genesis 2.24, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And the first time you read that passage, you think, no, you're not, Paul. You've been talking about a man and his wife uh, and saying some things that, frankly, in our culture are quite controversial to hear. Uh, This is a profound mystery. We're not ready for what he then says, at least not the first time. I'm talking, he says, about Christ and the church. And suddenly, Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and so on, is no longer just about a man and a woman getting married. But now, Paul says, it's pointing to something else entirely. 
Indeed, the whole purpose of God giving us marriage here on earth between a man and a woman is to illustrate the greatest and most significant relationship of all, that between Jesus Christ and his people. So what is God's purpose in marriage? Well, ultimately, it is to illustrate the one and only relationship for which we were perfectly made, a relationship we are called into now and which will endure into eternity to know the God who made us and who loves us and who redeems us and who calls us to trust him every step of the way. And once we grasp, actually, that God's purpose in marriage is to point to himself and how we may know him in Christ, then actually the key is in the lock and all sorts of Bible promises become much clearer. It also becomes something which equally applies to the single and the married. For whether we are single or married here on earth, All of us are called through the visual aid of human marriage to enter into this grandest relationship of all, to know God himself, to become a part of his bride, the church, and to long for the day uh, when we shall see him face to face. And therefore, as single or married, uh, if we are in Christ, then we are called to bear witness to this grand meaning of marriage. I've realized as I've come to week five that there are so many things that we still need to look at, uh, so many passages I want to explore with you, uh, and uh, we are going to come to an end next week. We'll have to leave some of these uh, just to the normal run of preaching through Bible books. Uh, But one passage which we shall only uh, touch on uh, very briefly next week and only glancingly this morning uh, contains this testimony of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Like the Lord Jesus, he was also a celibate, Uh, whether uh, he had been married previously and was now divorced or widowed nobody knows we only know that as the apostle uh, writes the documents that form roughly half of the new testament at that point in that season of his life he is a single man and he's enormously positive about his singleness indeed he writes to the corinthians i wish that all men were as i am having been speaking about his calling to be single for the Lord. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. I guess some of you have the gift of marriage, he concedes, and receive it as a gift from God. It's not as good as being single, but you make the most of it, won't you? It's rather contrary, isn't it, to our culture and instinct. But Paul uh, is enormously positive uh, about uh, remaining in the state that God has called him, and for him that means singleness. But whether we're single or married, either of us, in whatever state, may bear witness to the gospel itself, where we are called into the knowledge of God as we put our trust in Christ. But we bear witness to it, perhaps, in different ways. Indeed, we bear witness to the truth of the gospel in the unique set of circumstances that makes up our own life. But if we are married and we are called to bear witness to the gospel uh, by reflecting the grace and faithfulness of God in our marriages, by, for those who know us well, uh, showing that the grace of God that is necessary to sustain a marriage for more than a year uh, is the very grace that brings us into God's kingdom, where our sins are forgiven and where the promises are endlessly renewed. And our marriages, for those of us who are married in this world, are a contrast to the coming age. 
Yes, there's that point of continuity called to bear uh, witness uh, to the grace and faithfulness of the God we know in Jesus Christ. But actually, our marriages will come to an end. And however good they are, they're not perfect. And it is in that finitude and in those flaws that we point outside of our own marriages to the one perfect marriage that will never end, that based on Christ and his love and abiding faithfulness to his bride, the church. If we're single, uh, well, then we bear witness to the same gospel, but in a different way. Our calling, then, is to demonstrate the sufficiency of Christ in our singleness, massively countercultural in the age in which we live, and a painful calling, without doubt, but nevertheless an opportunity, as witnessed to by Paul and indeed John Stott and plenty of others, an opportunity to demonstrate that Christ's sufficiency really is more than just words. And indeed, uh, if uh, our flawed and finite marriages are a contrast to the perfect and endless marriage of Christ to his people, so the single person witnesses to the reality that in eternity uh, we shall also not be married to another human being. We were made for union with Christ, not to another person. Jesus is abundantly clear about this in his teaching. On one occasion, people tried to trip him up uh, by saying, well, here's a man, and uh, it was uh, slightly unfortunate because he died, uh, and his uh, late wife married his brother, and then he died, and that happened seven times. What a terror if you were the seventh brother, uh, because you had a pretty good idea of what was coming. And so then trying to trip Jesus up, these false teachers who didn't believe in the resurrection said, come on, Jesus, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? How's she going to pick from these seven men? And on that occasion, Jesus says, you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither neither marry nor be given in marriage, but rather will be like the angels in heaven. I wince a little bit every time I go through our churchyard and see the word reunited uh, on the tombstone of a married couple. Uh, of course, there's a sense in which that's true. If they were both in Christ, then they're both in heaven, but only in the sense that everyone who is in Christ is in heaven face-to-face with the Lord. Our marriage, too, on this earth to our husband or wife is a transitory thing. It is passing, and it will not be there in the age to come. Well, those of us who are single in this age bear witness to that eternal reality. If we're Christians, we're going to be, as it were, single in the Lord, or rather uh, in that fulfilled relationship with the Lord uh, for an eternity, whereas we're only married at best for a few short decades here on earth. So, married or single, in our state, whatever the Lord calls us to, we may bear witness to this great and glorious marriage, his with us. Uh, And we find this thinking throughout the scriptures. Marriage uh, is a parable in both the Old and New Testaments. God is always the husband, the faithful husband, uh, the passionate, faithful lover of his people. Uh, We are the faithless wife, and yet endlessly wooed and uh, loved and restored and forgiven and accepted. A law, uh, for example, uh, gives us uh, this. You can look in Exodus 34 uh, for the details. The Lord's jealousy for his wife, Israel, requires that she offer her devotion to no other lover, just as a man will share his wife with no other. 
Now, I know getting our minds into these categories uh, is difficult. Perhaps uh, you're a woman and think, well, it seems wrong that it's always the wife who is faithless and sinning. Well, if you're a man, you have to realize that you are part of the bride. Uh, We've all got a little bit of mental gymnastics to do uh, if we're going to let this parable do its work in us. Israel, of course, is a man. He's uh, uh, one of the patriarchs, and yet here, Israel is the wife of the Lord, just as the church is the bride of Christ. And we find this language frequently uh, in the prophets. Uh, We won't look at it in detail now because it's an extremely long chapter and uh, it would take us the rest of the sermon just to read it. But uh, read at home Ezekiel chapter 16 uh, because it tells the story of God's faithfulness and it points to the gospel that Jesus comes to bring. So in Ezekiel 16, it begins uh, with the Lord taking Israel as his bride. And it is a sheer act of grace. She has no noble heritage. There is no one to love her. And the Lord gives her life. That's what Jesus does for us. He gives us life. That is the gospel. We don't deserve it. We couldn't earn it. He loves us. And yet, as Israel grows uh, into sexual maturity and the Lord marries her, uh, he lavishes his love on her. Uh, well, this is the foundation of the gospel. The Lord loves us because he loves us. And as you're reading the first part of Ezekiel 16, you think, gosh, this is wonderful. This is so tender and intimate. The Lord loves us like this. And then comes the devastating central part of that chapter. Israel plays the whore. She uses her God-given beauty to engage in prostitution, pagan uh, rites, and other idolatrous practices. She forgets all that the Lord has done, and her sexual immorality, both literal and, as it were, moral in her idolatry, increases and increases. And so the Lord rebukes her. The Lord gives her what she chooses, and he calls her, though, to come back to him. And just as you think it's all over, Just as you think there is no possible pathway back for one who is so caught up in sin and rebellion and idolatry, we find that there is the Lord, the faithful husband, promising a new covenant. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Centuries before the coming of Christ, Here is the Lord promising a covenant that is a relationship based on his promises to us that will be endless, eternal, and a covenant that will be made by his providing the atonement, that is, at the sacrifice that will turn away his judgment against all of our sins. It's hard to imagine, actually, a passage, though too little known among us, that prepares us better for the gospel when Jesus comes to look for his lost sheep in the world, uh, to come for the sinners, for those who've made a mess, and not the righteous uh, who need a saviour, but the sinners, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Well, Jesus comes in fulfilment of this wonderful chapter uh, with the news that there is yet an everlasting covenant uh, never based on our performance, always based on his grace and his provision of atonement, his turning away the wrath that we so richly deserve. Well, you find the same pattern uh, in Jeremiah chapter 3. Uh, much more briefly, here uh, we find that Israel's sin is so 
awful and so unremitting that in his judgment, the Lord says this, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. And yet, in the very same context, the Lord declares he is merciful, that his mercy will triumph over judgment, to borrow the words from another prophet. And only a few verses later, we read this, Return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. This is the Lord who's just said, I've sent her away with a certificate of divorce. Well, it turns out only to be a period of separation for the purpose of discipline because the Lord will never break his marriage vows. His marriage to his people is indissoluble. He will always be our faithful husband. That's the picture we read in the prophets. There are other passages we could go to, not least in Jeremiah, who speaks so plainly of the hardness of our hearts and of the new covenant where God will give us of his own Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed and softened. And as we come to know his grace, so know that power for godly living that we've explored in recent weeks. But all of that, you see, prepares us for language that otherwise might be slightly surprising because Jesus describes spiritual faithfulness, faithlessness in the language of adultery of sexual immorality. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, he says. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Or again, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Does he mean literal adultery or idolatry? Well, probably the latter, but the reality is one of the principal ways in which we demonstrate our rejection of the Creator and our worshipping instead the world that he has made is in our sexual immorality. All of us. And here is the Lord Jesus saying, No, my word is sufficient, and I call you to believe it and take your stand upon it. You see, Jesus is the husband to a people. He is the Savior, in other words, who has come in order that those promises of God may be kept into eternity to come. And those promises may be seen to center upon the grace that extends to us who have made such a shipwreck of our lives in this as in every other way. Now, this is good news, friends. It's good news for us. It's certainly good news for an idolatrous and adulterous generation in which we live. And Jesus puts it positively uh, when he uses language uh, like him being uh, the bridegroom. How is it your disciples do not fast, he is asked. And Jesus said, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn when he is with them? Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the husband. He uses that language of himself. And he tells parables like this one. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Jesus invites us to that banquet. He invites us to come and know the intimate grace and forgiveness that he has come to win for us by his cross, that we may become, therefore, the bride of Christ. And so we find that language used often in the New Testament. We were studying 2 Corinthians not long ago. Paul says there, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. We are the bride of Christ, and our wedding day is yet to come. 
And so just as the Bible begins with God making us male and female in his image and then giving us marriage between a man and a woman as the means by which we will subdue and fill the earth, so as it begins with marriage, so the Bible ends with the true marriage, the one to which the marriage of Adam and Eve and all our earthly marriages is but a foreshadowing. So let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, uh, says uh, the last book of the Bible in Revelation. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So we are those who long for Jesus' marriage to be fulfilled. And the new heavens and the new earth come. Uh, What is it uh, but as uh, a bride beautifully dressed for her husband? And what is the meaning of that? Well, now the dwelling of God is with man and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I hope the point is made. The real meaning of marriage is of Christ's union with his people. The Lord's union uh, with Israel Uh, in the language of the Old Covenant. And this is indeed a profound mystery, a profound mystery to which if we are in Christ, we may bear witness, whether single or married, divorced or widowed, whatever our state, we may bear witness to this marriage because it centers upon his grace and faithfulness, without which none of us would stand before him. Well, now just more briefly, let's uh, look through Ephesians 5. Consider Christ, uh, the husband. Uh, Christ is the head of the church, and we, as his uh, body, are members together. Christ is the Son of God. Christ is risen from the dead. Uh, He is exalted over all creation. All the visible and invisible powers will surrender to him. No, his truly is authority. He is the head, not just in the sense of the source of the church, but he is our ruler and our master. And yet he comes to exercise that authority in love. He is the savior. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The cross stands at the center of this marriage, of the revelation of God's love and faithfulness in Christ. Its purpose, to make us holy, that is to bring us uh, now sanctified into the presence of of our maker on the basis of what he has done for us. We are cleansed from all that separated us from him, washed through the word, this gospel that brings us this good news. And the end goal, that we may be presented as a radiant church, nothing half-hearted or dull about this. Glorious is our status in Christ, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, Uh, but holy and blameless in his sight. If you are in Christ, this is you. Whatever your earthly uh, status in relationship terms may be. And as we look to Christ today, uh, so John John, John was helpfully reminding us uh, at the beginning of our service, we look to his mercy and grace at the cross, but we strive forward in faith trusting that he continues to feed and care for us. Now, this is what Paul says uh, is Christ's role. And if we consider uh, the other side, the wife, 
uh, in other words, us, uh, well, then our singular purpose is to submit to Christ. It's the one thing we're called to do. And if that sounds uh, a, a small thing, well, then ask what it looks like in response to all that Christ has been revealed to be. It means we joyfully confess that he is Lord, indeed the ruler over all creation, and not just the church, not just us. We know the one uh, who is the sovereign ruler uh, of the universe. Uh, I accidentally went into a year eight RE lesson this week. I got the time wrong, and uh, because I know the teacher very well, he decided to stop teaching and let me have the floor for a little while. Uh, I'm sure it wasn't because he'd run out of material, but uh, the, uh, the children in the class had been looking at some of the promises that Jesus made, and they'd been asked to consider how, is, how would this impact you and what difference would it make to your life. And uh, one girl put her hand up and said, what does it mean when Jesus says, I am the Christ or Messiah, and how is that an encouragement to you? I said, you know, that's the most wonderful news of all because my life often doesn't feel like anybody's in control. And I look out at the world and so often I see chaos and disorder and disaster. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the king. He is the Lord. He is the head. He is the one to whom I can turn for stability in the chaos of my own life and to whom we may all come and find that there is a Lord who holds in his hand, in his safe and gracious hands, our lives and all our ways. We submit to him joyfully and are glad that he is Lord. We trust his love, for it led to the cross by which we are washed and which is applied to us by his word. I submit to Christ means I trust you, Jesus, that it's enough that you died for me, for every sin that still pricks my conscience. Last night or 10 years ago, buried in my past, but still in my conscience to convict me. No, I submit to you, Jesus, and your cross is enough for me. You've washed me clean. You've made me holy. I belong to you. And... I submit to Christ means we submit to each other. We serve one another uh, in the Christian family uh, in different ways, perhaps, but nevertheless that heading uh, over the whole passage. Of course, this is uh, Paul's word to the married. And uh, as we draw to a close today, uh, I don't want to uh, be accused of sidestepping the obvious uh, application of Ephesians 5, uh, although the profound mystery refers to Christ and his bride, and that is the overarching message I want to bring you today, Paul's application is to the actually married. So what is there here for us uh, just in these last couple of minutes? Well, the danger in coming to Ephesians 5 is, is of reading in it what we want to find Some act uh, as if, verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, uh, as if that was invisible. And all that mattered was the differing roles for men and women in marriage. But Paul is quite clear. This is the heading over the whole. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In that sense, husbands submit to their wives. That is, they look to their needs and seek to serve them. They overlook their sins and forgive them in a myriad of ways. Of course, we are called to submit to one another uh, in our marriages, men and women, just as we are to one another in the body of the church. 
But then some read the passage as though verse 21 was the final word and rendered the further instructions to husbands and wives utterly meaningless or as if they were simply interchangeable. But it's pretty clear there is a different calling. Wives submit, husbands love. So as I've often said to marriage couples over the years, with varying degrees of success, there is little comfort in this passage for either chauvinists or feminists. Because in the end, God's gospel both uh, humbles us uh, as we're called to repent of our sins and exalts us as we come to find in Christ that love which we could not find in any other place. And the husband is the head of his wife, verse 23. And yet the the husband is never here or anywhere called to exert his headship. Wife, obey me is not something you will ever find encouraged for Christian husbands to say to their wives. And if you've been married for any length of time, you'll know it's a fairly pointless activity anyway. No, we are called instead to love our wives and to love them as Christ loved the church. That is, by giving ourselves up for our wives, putting their interests ahead of our own, willingly sacrificing ourselves for them. And as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. But if you ask, how does the church submit to Christ? Well, the answer is, we do it willingly, don't we? We do it joyfully, we do it gladly, because it is in response to the most amazing love that we could ever know. Well, that's the sort of love a husband is meant to show his wife in Christ. And if it's there, well then, as as Christ loved the church well, so in the same way, wives, to submit to that kind of self-sacrificial love. I hear the sound of the Philistines returning. We must turn to prayer. So let me do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for marriage. Thank you above all that the point of marriage is not our human marriages at all, but rather your great overarching grace and faithfulness that you show to us, ultimately in the Lord Jesus, who comes as the bridegroom, that we might receive his love, submit to him, yield our lives to him, and find our satisfaction, our identity, our calling, in submitting to him who is our husband and our Lord. Oh, Jesus, perhaps that's new language for some of us this morning. Perhaps it's a new concept entirely. Please write your word on our hearts. And Lord, whatever our situation, single or married, happy or not, I pray that we might bear witness to your sufficiency and the grace that triumphs. Come, Lord Jesus, we long to see you and bring this world to an end that we may come to that day when all of heaven shall be open to us. For we ask it in your name. Amen.